We are in Psalm 119 this morning. This is actually the uh, 22nd part of a 22-part series, which for many of you is kind of shocking. (laughs) But in the Adult Sunday School Hour, we've been going through all of the stanzas of Psalm 119, 22 of them in fact, and so we've come to this point 21 weeks before, and we're now to this point, and I wanted to share this particular message with everyone, not just those in the adult Sunday school hour, just because I think it's, well, it's relevant for all of us, because I, but I think it's, this is perhaps one of my favorite portions of scripture, let alone portions of the Psalms. But it's so fascinating to me, and as I was reflecting, uh, I started this, uh, that, that study in the adult Sunday school hour uh, back in July, actually. Uh, back in July, we're starting through uh, Psalm 119, verse 1, and it's just so fascinating to me. That as we come to this last stanza, it happens to fall on the last Sunday of 2019. I didn't, I would like to tell you that I planned that really intricately. I really didn't. (laughs) It just kind of worked out that way. And God has a funny way of doing that, I guess. Even through all the weeks that perhaps I've been absent or whatever. It works out to where now we come to this stanza, which I love. I want you to notice these words. the, The first two verses of this stanza. Notice them with me because... I think what we're going to see here is, uh, I'm going to, for those of you who have been in the Sunday school hour many times, some of this will appear or will be repetitive for you, uh, but I want to catch everyone up, so to speak. But this is, uh, you can really see the psalmist's heart here. The psalmist is David. You can sense his agony over these words. Listen to what he says. Let my cry Come before thee, O Lord, and give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee and deliver me according to thy word. It's plain to see that David is enduring another situation in his life in which he is suffering, in which he is going through adversity. You know, there's some psalms in which you can kind of tie back into David's life and you can say this is what he's going through when he's writing those words. You know, it's like Psalm 51, after the sin with Bathsheba. You can read that and you can read uh, the story and see the, the torment, the anguish that David went through. It's not really known though what is causing David to have such anguish here. But it must have been a terrifying circumstance, I think. But I think uh, largely that just is what David's life is. It's a huge understatement to say, though, that David, his life was one that was familiar with suffering. (laughs) You read his life, read everything that happens to him. He was familiar with adversity, with grief. You know, he spent most of his early adult life either being hunted or being on the run. Remember that? He is anointed by the prophet Samuel as the next king of Israel. And immediately his life is turned upside down. And he goes on the run for his very life. Hunted by the very king, the very father of his best friend, King Saul. He becomes a king who is not yet king, who is running for his life. He is a fugitive. (laughs) And then, throughout his reign, once he ascends to the throne, we know that his kingship, his rule, was plagued with wars and griefs and scandals. 
He didn't know much in the way of even civil peace, let alone spiritual peace as Israel's ruler. So there you might say, he's the soldier king, a king who wars, a king who struggles. And his whole reign is characterized by that, by struggle and scandal, by conflict, by bloodshed. You can read all of the events of David's rule and that is what will come and shine through it all. That he is a man of war. The man after God's own heart as David is called elsewhere is yes a man of war and conflict and struggle. And I think that's why the Psalms are so relatable. You have friends who say what's your favorite book of the Bible. I I would hasten to say that many times they would probably say the Psalms. I know they're the most Relevant for me because they are so relatable. David is, and not just David, there's Moses in here and Asaph, but mainly David, through these psalms, he's pouring out his soul. He's trying to give voice to the anguish he feels, the suffering that he is being made to endure. And that's why I think really uh, David's life sort of mirrors a lot of you know, great songwriters that you and I are familiar with today. Where they write songs in the middle of life's hardest moments. In the most intense seasons of life. I think that's for a couple of reasons. Mainly because I think singing has this naturally sort of therapeutic effect to it. It lifts us when we sing. Such is why when we sing on church in the mornings, it aligns our hearts. It aligns our minds and our souls. And it's also, too, I think one of the few things that we know is going to be carried over in the afterlife. We know we're going to be singing there. There's already angels around the throne of Jesus singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty right now, even now. But I think... The psalms, many psalms are like that. They're spiritual songs that are composed during life's intensest and severest struggles. David's struggles, David's hardships, he's giving them voices. You see, one of the things that has always struck me as I've studied Psalm 119 and studied the rest of David's writings is just the fact That I don't think that these are words that David always put into practice all the time. You read Psalm 119 and we know it as this psalm that perhaps evokes a longing and and a love for the word of God. But the reality is David didn't always put these words into practice all the time. It was almost as if rather he is trying to remind himself of what is true. These are words David wanted to put into practice and wanted to believe. And by writing them down, it's almost as if he's reminding them and reminding himself of what is true. He's reminding himself that the word of God is his truest delight. Even when sometimes it's not his truest delight. Even when sometimes he'd rather do something else. Rather think about something else. He's reminding himself, the word is my delight. Look at a, look at a couple of verses. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 119. Look at what he says. He says, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Or look at verse 24. 
He says, thy testimonies are my delight and my counselors. Or jump over to verse 47. He says, and I will delight myself in thy commandments, which which I have loved. And on and on it goes. You can see throughout this chapter, David is convincing himself of the glory and the majesty and the sufficiency of the word of God in front of him. It's the longest chapter in your Bible. 176 verses. And he spends them praising this word of God. Also our English doesn't really convey this as much. But you may know this. That it's 22 stanzas. Each representing sort of the next sequential letter in the Hebrew alphabet. He wrote it as sort of an acrostic poem. As sort of a song that was supposed to evoke the beauty and the majesty of the word. And the sense of it all. The through line so to speak of this chapter. Is that God's word is David's only recourse. His only refuge from life's sufferings. It's the only place he can go. And he's speaking to himself so to speak. Going back to our stanza. He wants to live a life, as he says there twice in those two verses, according to thy word. That's really the theme of the psalm. A life lived according to the word. You can see it. It's in verse 28, in verse 82, in verse 107, verse 143. He's striving. He's seeking after rest and relief from all of this chaos and commotion around him. To live a life according to God's word. And that's where we come to this last stanza. Because I've always been so baffled by this last eight verses. Because if you read it and you read of what he's struggled with, of what he's gone through, the last stanza can kind of seem almost anticlimactic. It can seem kind of like an odd ending. But I think as is rightly the word I want to get in your mind's eye this morning is that this very struggle that David gives voice to here in this last stanza is what allows him and us to persevere. In the Christian life. And this is his prayer. The prayer here in these last eight verses is perseverance. Notice quickly. I have three sort of components that kind of make up this stanza. That relay this message of perseverance to us. In these first two verses as we've already seen. We have David's plea. Notice it again. He says, let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according unto thy word. And let my supplication come before thee and deliver me according to thy word. Again, you can see it in David's voice. You can just hear it in these words that he is praying a desperate prayer. Notice the word there, cry. He says, let my cry come near before thee. It has this idea of a ringing sound. You know that ringing in your ears you get sometimes, which is really annoying? (laughs) That's kind of what this word, that's kind of what it's evoking. He's asking his prayer to be almost a ringing sound in God's ears. And notice the next word there in verse 170 where he says, let my supplication. 
It's really a plea for grace. And essentially what he's saying here is this. I need grace to be near you. To ask for grace to stay close to you. Hear me God. I need you to hear me and listen to me. So I can stay close to you. You can see he's not. Confident in himself, in and of his own abilities, but he's confident in his God. He's confident that this God will hear him. He's confident of the fact that that God will listen. You see, he doesn't barge into this presence of God in this prayer, sort of gripping his righteousness and his spirituality and his religiosity. And he doesn't say, God, listen up. No, he comes with God. He pleads God to just even listen to him. God, let me come before you and listen, please, to my words. Listen to my prayer. He says, according to thy word. He says it again in both verses. Verse 169 and 70. And essentially, he, he, I love that he includes it both times. Because he's basically saying, God, remember your word. Remember your promise. Listen to me based on that. Listen to me based on what you have told me in your word. According unto thy word. Listen to me based on that. Not because of me. Not because of anything that I've done. But because of what you have promised. According to your word, listen to me. You can see how entirely opposite David's prayer is here from the prayer of the, public, of, the, of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. If you remember that story, we don't have to turn there. But you remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican. They go up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, he quote unquote prays. And he says, uh, remember all of the things that I have done, God. I've fasted, I've, I've given you all that I have, and, and I thank you, God, for not making me like this tax collector over there. He doesn't even really pray. He, he boasts in the things that he has done. He boasts in all the accomplishments that he has done throughout the last couple days and weeks. And that's what the, the Pharisee there in that, in that parable is striving uh, for God to listen to him based on what he has accomplished. And here you can see it. How entirely opposite it is of David. He's not boasting in those things. His words, his works. He's boasting and he's not even boasting. He's crying. Pleading, God, let my cry come near before you. Listen to me. Let my supplication come before thee. Accept my prayers. Why? Because you've promised to listen to me based on your word. You can see these two verses sort of echo each other. Hear me, deliver me, rescue me because you have promised to do it. He knows he needs help. He knows that he is a desperate man who is struggling. So what does he do? He prays to his helper. And I think I love these two, these two verses because... I think they rightly give us the proper sort of portrait of prayer. It's weak and it's helpless. Prayer is, is, is not the assertion of power and strength. You know what it is? It's the assertion of utter weakness. Knowing that you have a strong one who listens to you on your behalf. 
Knowing that you are utterly helpless apart from this one who is listening to you. Intervening and listening. There's no magical words or mystical incantations we can pray or memorize. The only power that is in prayer it re- resides in the one that we pray to. He has all the power in prayer. I love the fact that David uses these words of desperation. Cry, supplication. He elsewhere talks about how he, he has these um, tears that just fall night and day. And how he's struggling with getting the words out, so to speak. Have you ever prayed and that's been, been you? You've just prayed and you're so broken that you can't even get the words out. I love the fact that God listens to even those prayers too. He listens to our groaning. As he says in Romans chapter 8. That he, he takes the groaning and he brings it before the Father. Because as he says in Romans 8.27 I believe. Is we don't even know how to pray as we ought. Yet we have a mediator who hears us. Who listens to us. And brings our prayers before the Father. Which is to say this. That God is not impressed or disappointed by the vocabulary that you use or do not use when you pray. You know, I've been around, uh, you know, teachers, pastors, professors or whatever who pray uh, really pretty prayers. (laughs) They use lots of these and thous and old English words. (laughs) It sounds really nice and lyrical. God doesn't hear that prayer any more or better than he does the prayer of a three-year-old. He's not impressed or disappointed by what we say or don't say in our prayers. You know what he's after in our prayers? After our reliance. Such is why we can just cry to him. Such is why we can just pour our souls out to him like David does. Because he's not after some eloquent, accurate even prayer. When we stutter, when we stumble, or perhaps if if you've been here too, you woke up in the morning and tried to get a a good, solid prayer time in and maybe you fell asleep. God heard that prayer too. God hears that prayer. Why? It's a prayer of reliance. Which I, I love how he says that. Let my cry, let my prayer, let my desperation be a ringing sound in your ears. And he moves then, look at the next two verses. Because he moves from that plea to look at David's praise. Look at what he says. My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of thy word. For all thy commandments are righteousness. He moves from crying now to singing. Because his mind has sort of been captured by the promise of the word. That he moves from crying and now he, you can see sort of the assurance. The self-assurance come to the fore uh, a little bit more. Where now he's not crying necessarily. He's singing. He says, let my lips utter praise. In verse 171. He's seeking to just pour it out. Pour out this praise for God. In the next verse where he says... My tongue shall speak. Literally that is. My mouth will sing. He's singing. But notice take note of what he is praising God for. 
Look at it again. Verse 171. My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of thy word. It shall sing of thy word. For all thy commandments are righteousness. <coughs> then jump down to verse 174 where he says, I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. You know what he's singing about? He's singing about the fact that this word that he has in front of him. It's true, yes. And it's true because it tells him where his righteousness is found. It tells him where his righteousness lies. It tells him where his righteousness comes from. These statutes and commandments of God. What do they tell us? They tell us of the one who stood in our place and kept all of the statutes and commandments for us on our behalf, in our stead. It tells us of the one who won the righteousness of God for us and imparted it to us by his grace. He's singing because he knows that this law of God, which is unflinching, which is resolute, which is inflexible, has been fulfilled on his behalf. By the one who stood and fulfilled it for him. By his long promised son that would come and fulfill all of the law for him. You see you can only delight in God's law when you know you've been delivered from it. And David has been given this promise and now he's singing about these commandments that are righteousness. And they are righteousness not that he wins but righteousness that he's been given. It's the righteousness of the Savior. It's the righteousness of Jesus. David was looking forward unto that promise. We have the ability to look backward unto it. But all in all we sing and praise God. Because he gives us the righteousness of God. And he gives it to us. Which opens our mouths to sing. Which opens our hearts to praise him. When you praise God here on Sunday mornings, it comes from a remembrance of your redemption. You want to be more passionate about your singing? Remember the fact that Jesus bled and died for you. And then you can say with David, my lips shall utter, they will pour forth praise. You see, this is what David's after. He says, thou hast taught. He's wanting to learn more. Let me learn more from your word so I can praise you all the more. Because the more I learn of you, the more I'll praise you. This is the beautiful fact of the Christian life. That the more we know about God, the more we will find out there is is to praise him for. You will never run out of things to praise God for. Ever. You'll always be finding something new, something beautiful, something glorious to praise him for. Your entire life. It leads me, uh, Albert Barnes, he's a great commentator on the entire scriptures. And he says this about this passage. He says, the ever increasing knowledge of God will excite ever increasing praise. And as God is infinite and eternal, it follows that the increase of knowledge and of happiness in those who are saved will be eternal. These things will go hand in hand forever and ever. Which is to say this, increased knowledge equals increased praise. 
Ad infinitum, we might say, forever, always. Your life as a believer is this. It's a never-ending sort of adventure of finding out what we can praise God for. New discoveries of his grace and fullness and faithfulness. And such is why he says here, I love that he says, My lips shall, my tongue shall sing of thy word. It's not something he's obligated to do. It's something that he is privileged to do. It's a privilege for him to sing. Because he's been freed by this God who pleads for him. Who performs and wins righteousness on his behalf. That song, that hymn that we sing oftentimes. Just as I am without one plea. I love it. Because in it, it evokes all of what David's talking about. He can praise God. Why? Because he knows that his plea isn't his own. It's Jesus' plea for him. And we can sing of that. This one plea that we have is the plea that Jesus Christ is. And here, he has this praise. It comes out of pleading for God to hear him. And then he has this praise of God because he knows where his righteousness comes from. Again, it comes from Jesus' bleeding side. Which leads us to the last part of the stanza. Which is David's persistence. Look at it again. So he moves from crying to singing and then look at it again. Look at verse 173. Let thine hand help me for I have chosen thy precepts. I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let my soul live and it shall praise thee. And let my ju- like thy judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant for I do not forget thy commandments. It's always, it's always astounded me how he ends this psalm. 175 verses. And he has spent praising God about his word. It's sufficiency, it's delight, it's beauty, the treasures that it holds. How he loves to sing of this word. And he's determined to love it. It would be natural, and it's natural for us to conclude if we just read all of those 175 verses, and we can say, wow, David has mastered something. He's like this super spiritual, sanctified Christian. We know that really not to be true. And then he comes to the end of this entire thing. And what does he say? I have gone astray. I've wandered I've wandered from you, God, like a lost sheep, like a lost, helpless lamb. That the word that I've struggled and striven to believe in, it still hasn't really done its work because I still go astray. I think it's fascinating that David confesses this. Because the sense is, I have gone astray, meaning I have and I will continue to. It's sort of a present reality where he knows his heart. His heart is prone to wander, as the hymn says. And I think this is the reason he's praying in the first place. The reason he's singing in the first place. Because he knows his heart is tended to go after wandering. To going after its own desires. It goes after its own wishes. Notice he says, help me, verse 173. 
Surround me. Defend me. He says, seek me in verse 176. He's pleading with God. Again, he's pleading with God to persevere. But I love those words. Seek thy servant in verse 176. Again, the Hebrew language is a lot more poetic than English. And here, the meaning of these words is important. And I'm not going to read Hebrew because I don't know it. But I'm going to try and explain what it means. Because really, what he's saying is, seek me with your hand. Almost like seek for me by touching me. I'll tell you this. Maybe parents in here can relate to this. So I was growing up and I have an older brother and I have a younger sister. And we, the house we grew up in, it was two stories. And most of everything happened on the top story. And then everything, like our rooms and such and offices were on the second story. And so we were on, I'm on the top story, let's say, one night. And my parents tell me, go get your siblings for dinner. What do you think I did? I just yelled and shouted, hey, come up for dinner. <laughs> Which isn't really exactly what they were going for. <laughs> That's not really fulfilling their command of go get your brothers, or your brother and your sister for dinner. But I was just yelling and shouting, hey, come up here. What did they want me to do? They wanted me to go downstairs and actually tell them to their faces, hey, come up for supper. The same sort of picture is, the, is in these words. He's asking for God. Don't just call out for me. Come and find me with your hands. Come and pick me up. And bring me back to your side. By your own doing. Come and find me. As he says, like a lost sheep. And it brings to mind that wonderful picture from Luke chapter 15. Where the good shepherd goes after the lost sheep. And he brings it home. As you've seen perhaps everywhere on the internet. Where that shepherd breaks the lamb's legs. And puts it on his shoulders. And brings it back home. That's what he's praying for. God, come and find me. Don't just shout for me. Come and find me with your hand. Come and bring me close. Pick me up. It's that good shepherd David's talked about. Like in Psalm 23. He knows that this God is going to come chase him down. And essentially that's what he's praying for the whole time. For God to persevere for him. Don't stop helping me God. Don't stop pursuing me. Don't stop persevering for me. Because I'm weak and I'm prone to wander. This is made to me. The last, the last verse again is astounding to me. Because of the verses that come just prior to it. Look at verses 167 through 168. The stanza just previous. Look at what he says. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. And then he says, I have gone astray. <laughs> this seemed to be two very different confessions from David. I have kept, I have obeyed, and yet I have gone astray. Seems strange. That they would come from the same person. The same mouth. That he would testify to the fact that he has obeyed. And he's striving to obey. And yet he's wandering. 
Honestly, this is, I think, the tenor of the entire psalm. This is the theme of the entire thing. If you look at it through it all the time, he's talking about how he will keep the statutes of God. He will delight and meditate on God's precepts. The idea that he hasn't always done it perfectly, but he will now. (laughs) You know that hymn that we always sing, I surrender all? We sing it not because it's true, because we want it to be true. We haven't always all surrendered all of us to God. But we pray, God, help me to surrender all. Help me to surrender all to you. And this, I think, is what David is conveying here. He's being honest about who he was, a lost sheep who is desperate for his shepherd. And he wanted to love God above everything else. But sometimes he didn't want anything to do with God. There were moments when he didn't want God at all. I'll be honest with you. I'll confess to you. That's me too. There are moments and hours and days even perhaps where I don't want anything to do with God. And that may surprise you and shock you. That's the Christian life. There are times when we don't want God. When we fulfill that verse from Isaiah 53, 6. Where we have all like sheep gone astray and gone to our own way. You, if you're honest with yourself, I hope that you would confess the same thing. Because I have to confess the same thing too. That there are times where I'm trapped between what I know is true and right and what my flesh wants. It reminds me, let me read the verses because these verses are impactful and powerful. It reminds me of what Paul talks about in Romans 7. You perhaps remember these words. He's confessing the same thing. Paul is here in Romans 7 verse 15. He says, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil that which I would not, that I do. (laughs) Again, Paul is using this really confounding language to essentially say, I know what is true, and I don't do those true things, and I know what is not true, and I keep doing those untrue things. He's expressing this present reality where, yes, like David, he is a lost sheep. A sheep who's been brought into the fold and who yet keeps wandering. Who keeps running away. And always, a pastor made me think of this one time. I wonder how many times the prodigal son left. Was it that one time? Or was it a couple times? Or how many times did the sheep leave? Was it one time or did he keep wandering? And how many times did the good shepherd go after him? Every time. Every time the good shepherd goes after his lost sheep. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. He goes after wandering sheep who go astray. 
This is why we have the good news. It tells us about the good shepherd who comes after us. Even when we don't want anything to do with him. Who gives his words of mercy and grace to us all the time. This leads me to... Because we have to confess this thing. That we don't always want God all the time. There are times when our flesh wins out. We fail. We stumble. We falter. But the good news is this. That your standing in heaven isn't tied to the fact whether you want God all the time or not. Because if God only saved people who wanted him above everything else all the time, there would be no one in heaven. The truth of the matter, the good news is that our standing in heaven is tied to the fact of Romans 5.8. That even while we are sinners, even while we are wandering, Christ died for us. Even while we are enemies, he says, Christ made reconciliation with the Father. See, God doesn't wait for us to want him in return. He is the good shepherd that goes out in search of his sheep. He goes out in search of us and brings us back to the sheepfold. Listen to these words from Ezekiel chapter 34. Let me turn there quickly. Ezekiel 34 verses 11 through 16. The prophet here gives us an amazing picture of this shepherd. He says, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel and uh, shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost. And I will bring again that which was driven away. And I will bound up that which was broken. And will strengthen that which was sick. This is what the good shepherd does. He seeks us out. He comes out in search of us. And this is the promise that David was clinging to. According to your word, God, you have promised this. That you will search me out. You will persevere for me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant. This is the good news for you this morning. If you are here and you are saved this morning, that you know that God has redeemed your soul... Your salvation is not tied to how you feel right now in this instance. It's not tied to your feelings. We don't contend for a religion of feelings. We have a religion of fact. Feelings, they come and go. They fluctuate with life, with the ebbs and flows of our emotions that are up and down and here and there and yon. 
God's word stays the same. It never changes. It is never fluctuating. It is never alterable. We cannot change what the word of God says. What does it say to us? That Jesus has died for our sins and washed them in his blood. And that is what our salvation stands on. Not feelings, but the foreverness of God's word. The definitive fact that he has taken all of our wretchedness away from us and died for it and buried it in his grave and he's left that grave for us. That's where our faith lies. And a God who has done it, who has finished it, in the definitive declarative fact of his resurrection, of his crucifixion and death for us. Which leads me to say this. We're coming to the end of a year. 2019 is almost over. And like any good New Year's, it will bring New Year's resolutions. I will not ask how many of you have kept those throughout the last 11 months, 12 months. If you're like me, then they failed within the first two weeks. But you may come to the end of your year... And you're not where you want to be in your life spiritually. You may come to the end of this year and you may realize what? Your faith amounts to nothing more than a fizzle. You haven't grown like you want to grow. That is enough. You may find that your faith is smaller than a mustard seed. But guess what? That is enough. God says a faith that is a mustard seed is all that is necessary to move mountains. And the picture there is it doesn't matter the quality or the quantity of your faith. But who your faith is in. Is it in yourself? Or it is in your good shepherd who perseveres for you. Your king and savior who perseveres for you. One of the most glorious verses for me is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, which says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. Even if we are faithless, God is faithful. He is the persevering shepherd who we can praise because he pleads for us, he pleads on our behalf. And he perseveres on our behalf. So regardless of what 2020 is going to hold for you. God is faithful. You may have an up year or a down year. An up week or a down week or whatever. You may be made to realize just how fickle your faith is. And guess what? That's okay. Because you have a faithful one who perseveres for you. He perseveres on your behalf. He is this good shepherd. Where is your faith this morning? Is it in this Jesus who is the good shepherd? Or is it in the fact that you think that you have resolved enough? (laughs) That you are somehow good enough? That you can keep this word perfectly. 
Whose plea are you trusting in? Whose grip are you believing in? Yours or Jesus's? I vow to myself to believe all the more in Jesus's grip for me. Because great is his faithfulness. Matchless is his perseverance. Let us pray.